So in terms of extroverts becoming introverts, which is I hear from many adults who say, well, I used to be an extrovert now, but I think I'm an introvert. And many introverted adults say, oh my gosh, I think I'm an extrovert now. And here's what really happens is type of preferences between extroversion and introversion, for example, is based on that you have that preference and you express it 51% or more of the time. So you don't, it's not like 90%. But however, when you're, when you're a younger person, like when you're in your 20s and 30s and even younger, if you're an extrovert, you're probably doing that quite a bit of the time. You're probably, you're probably uh, interacting with your outer world and getting your energy from your outer world 60, 70, maybe even 80% of the time. So it feels like you're always an external. And then as we age, our lives get complex. I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanera, and this is a podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. My guest today is Marky Reed, president and co-founder of Korean Networks, a leadership organizational and career development company based right here in Vermont. Marky Reed has 25 years experience in coaching and training groups and individuals in developing and implementing sustainable leadership and professional development programs. Marky is certified in Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, Flex Talk, and Emotional Intelligence, and is the author of Your Cast of Characters, a Leadership Development Toolkit. She also sits on the board of Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility and, amongst other organizations, serves as a chapter coordinator for the Women's Business Owners Network. Marky, you have a seriously impressive resume, and I am thrilled to have you on my show. Well, thank you very much, Tina. I'm looking forward to it. So I first met you via an introduction made to me by our mutual friend, Mark Heyman, at a time when I was going through my own process of self-discovery and considering a new direction and new challenges for my career. But for the benefit of my audience, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what exactly a life coach is? So I, I provide individual assistance to people who are in some kind of transition. So they might be wondering what's next step in their current career. They might be wanting to change their career entirely. Some people never really had a career and they still need to figure that out. And I also work with a lot of entrepreneurs who are either launching an idea or trying to reframe a current business in some way. So sometimes people have been in business for many years and they it's not working for them and they need to reframe it. And other people are just in that stage of, of um, launching, uh, birthing an idea. So I help them through that process. Great. 
So when you look back at your life, what are some of the seemingly unrelated experiences and events that played an influential and informative role in what you ended up doing in your career? Um, if you look back, say, 30 years and beyond, there was probably no such thing as a life coach. No, there really wasn't. And in fact, you know, when I started out as a journalist and um, and was very happy and, and had some success in that field, and I and I quickly realized that I wanted to engage with people in a in a deeper way than I could as a journalist. As a journalist, you're always on the outside, kind of observing. And um, I really stumbled into being a coach because I didn't I didn't even know it existed. Like you know, nobody nobody says you know go why don't you go be a coach? Because in fact, the whole field of coaching hadn't really developed at that time as a distinct uh, uh, certification at the time. And just for clarification, I'm actually not a certified coach, but I do coach a lot of people. So I was looking for the next thing and um, started writing resumes and getting and realizing that uh, listening to people's career stories was fascinating to me. And I started realizing that those um, those stories were a lot like writing articles. I wrote a lot of uh, profile articles also. And um, then when people started asking me about, uh, you know, what do I do with a cover letter and how do I interview, I, I found myself having some suggestions that were very practical and helpful. And then I continued to do more uh, professional development in that field so that I would be able to really uh, be able to feel confident with the answers that I was giving people and the assistance. Um, but it was really serendipitous for me to find myself suddenly consulting with people in the area of career and employment. It wasn't something that I ever knew existed as a career. I see. Do you think that uh, you were destined to be doing something like this, or were you really sort of more destined to be doing something along the journalism line? I think this was really where I was headed all along, you know, and I, I, I had the opportunity to reflect on these sorts of things quite a bit in my, in my life because I often tell people, uh, my own journey. And I can remember really as far back as the third grade of holding what I call holding court in the back of the classroom and having, uh, friends who were asking me questions about, you know, what did this mean and what did this, what did what did this boy do? For, why did he do that? And wanting to like get my consultation. And while I didn't really think of myself in that is a is a you know a counselor, coach, consultant sort of type at that age. Certainly, I don't think anybody does. I remember I have vivid images of um, on the playground and classroom having you know, groups of especially girls around me talking and, and wanting to get answers to things. And I somehow was able to help people find answers on their own, but also provide them some information that, that would um, resolve the challenges they were having in, in relationships or in life. And again, even through high school, I don't think I ever officially understood that that was a function that I had in, in my peer group. But I was often in that role with friends, too, who were upset or having a difficult time, and I somehow had a reasonable voice through that for them, and which is ironic for me because my own personal uh, life at home did not feel, I, I didn't feel like I had a reasonable voice at home, it's, but somehow when I talked to other people, I was able to provide that. So um, as, as a young adult, what social group did you belong to? I really don't. I never felt like I had a group. I I migrated from many groups. 
Um, you know, I was a good student, so I was in all of the honors classes and with those kinds of folks uh, in my during during my daily classroom time. But it breaks, and on you know lunch and after school, I wasn't with those people. I was with some of the probably some of the more um, unseemly characters. <laughs> and um, you know, I didn't smoke myself, but I hung out with the people who were basically the smokers. Uh, in, in high school, we were allowed. They had a smoking area in those days, which would be unheard of today. And um, so I, I hung around with a lot of different groups. And then I also come from a big family. And so in some ways, my social group always included some part of my family until I left for college and really went on and had my own life. Yeah, that's interesting. Part of my line of questioning there was, uh, is that, you know, are we a byproduct of our past and does our past define who we are and who we become in our future? Well, that's a really great way to, that's a really interesting way to ask it because I would, I would say, are we really being compelled into a future that we didn't know existed but is always there waiting for us? So, you know, you come from the perspective of looking at what are the past um, stories that add up to who the current person is. And yes, it's true that many of those stories, uh, I have many stories that I can see cumulated, cumulatively came to this point in my life. Um, but I also see that there's something compelling me from the future pulling me into that. So I feel, I feel the draw from both sides. Hmm. Yeah, I never really looked at it that way. Um, do you think that you have to almost sit down and envision what your future looks like? Or do you kind of stumble through it and then only when you look back in the rearview mirror, you sort of see how things happened and events unfolded that sort of shaped where you end up being? I believe we do both. And, you know, when we're younger, and, and I have a general theory that until you've been on the planet for about 30 years, you don't really have a, an idea of where you're going because you don't have enough, you don't have enough of a track record. You haven't been, you haven't simply haven't logged enough time on the planet to know what is all those strange, unrelated events, what strings them together and then brings you into the future. And so, from about the age of 25, actually, for about 25 years, from 25 to 50, I worked very uh, intensely with a mentor and teacher who, you know, really, in some ways, forced and cajoled and, and encouraged me to dig deeply into who I am and what does it all mean. And I was in that quest. I was already in that quest when I met her. So she was someone who was very influential to me in my life and help me reframe past experiences into meaningful um, ideas for the future. So in that whole process, I had many opportunities to think about what are those past pieces that added up to who I am, but also then what did, what did I really want from that? So And so what? So all those past experiences were interesting, but so what? What did that mean for who I am going forward? And when I started really connecting to that, what I call that compelling vision for my future, is when I really started to feel connected to who I am as a, like, as a being on the planet, rather than kind of fumbling along. And what I find with most people, and, and, and again, this is also to remember that I can say much of this in hindsight, because of course <laughs> I can now see all the lines, right? right. But most of the people that I work with, uh, really, and most people that I think bumble along, they don't, they don't have the opportunity to have either themselves or anyone else 
ever look at the string of stories and say, do you realize there are several core, core themes to who you are and what you're doing? And that what you've been doing no matter where you were, sometimes you called yourself one job and then you had another job and sometimes you weren't employed at all, but you were still that core of a person through all of that. And that's what I, that's part of what I really help people figure out is what's that core so that wherever they are, no matter what their job title is, no matter what they're being paid, no matter all of those things, if they understand that core and they're in alignment with that, that's when the real magic occurs for people. That's when the real, um, they really lock into who they are and they're, and they, and they are able to move forward with more confidence. Right. So I suppose, um, at some point in a person's life, they need to take that pause and decide to have a little bit of that introspection to try and figure out who they are, what they are all about, what they're trying to accomplish. And I, I'm assuming that's sort of what your role is as a life coach, is to help them in that moment. Yes, exactly. And I believe that, that part of the reason why I've been using personality type in the form of Myers-Briggs for all these years also is because... I've seen clear correlations between certain certain people of certain types um, ask those those questions. At, let's see, let me back up. People ask those those key questions that I help people with at different stages of life according to their type. And so there are some people that seemingly were born asking those questions, and there's others who you know I don't. They don't. They doesn't occur to them until they're in their late fifties to even consider, you know, who am I and what does it all mean. So the uh, well, I, that's what's fascinating for me about personality type because really, no matter when the person asks the question, that's that's the often the core question that I'm working with people in is who am I and what does it all mean. Even if that's not the thing that they thought they were coming for, people come for resumes, people come for job interviews, coaching, people come for, you know, life, they come for all kinds of things, but, but really what oftentimes what's bothering them is they can't quite make sense of who they are and what does it all mean. And so whether it's helping someone write a summary of their, their, career in their resume or helping them prepare for an interview or helping them come up with the admission statement to their business or even helping an organization come together as a functioning team. I'm always looking for that central meaning of, you know, who are you and what, what are, why are you bothering? Because really life is a bother mostly and if we don't know why we're bothering, then it's just a pain. If we have some reason for why we're bothering, then it actually helps us have some humor about the pain that we experience. Exactly. That's really insightful. And so you are certified in Myers-Briggs type indicator. Can you tell me a little more about personality types, what Myers-Briggs is all about, and how it plays a role in our personal and professional lives? And maybe you can throw in a couple of examples. Sure. So the simplest way that I can think of describing uh, the 16 types is that, first of all, they were, they're basing Carl Jung's work of personality types and development. And um, Isabel Myers and Catherine Briggs developed the MBTI, which is the Myers-Briggs type indicator. So a quick image to think about is if you think about a 16-room house, that there are 16 different types. We all have a favorite room in the house that we tend to gravitate toward. It's the place where we go to regenerate and find ourselves and find comfort again. And we move around the house all the time, partly because we have to. You know, we can't just live in one room. 
And sometimes we want to. Sometimes we want to explore other rooms. But we always come back to our, our favorite native room to regenerate. And that's really what our type is. So in terms of um, how it's useful and how it impacts our personal professional lives is that for some people, um, I'm working with a, um, an individual right now, for example, who happens to be in a food service um, capacity. So he's a front-end manager of a restaurant. And his, his particular personality type is one that's very committed to um, serving people in their immediate practical needs. And he also has a great sense of loyalty to those who have um, served him well. So he happens to be an ESFJ. So if anybody knows what that means, that's what that is. And how that, what I see is done, what we've done with him, for him around his personality type is that he has started to see that those core qualities that I just described, how they translate from being somebody at a restaurant to also being somebody who could uh, work at a in the back of the house of a in management of a of hospitality environment, or not even in hospitality at all, and working as an artist who he's also an artist, and how does that serve him in his artistic expression? And when he saw all those different capacities of how he can function but still be the guy that he is, suddenly like he didn't feel like he was trapped in the job that he's in now, which he, he doesn't particularly care for. He's not he's not this which is why he came. He's not he's not happy in his current work. And, you know, another um person that I am um working with right now is someone who's got who's quite mature in her career. She's actually had a very, very successful career, has nearly everything she's touched. She's worked because she's a very bright woman. She's just really quite a remarkable person. She's always felt terribly misunderstood. And it seemingly somehow in the first meeting that we had, I started talking to her like I understood her. And she said I don't know how you did that, but you seem to understand me. And part of it, I didn't know her type, but I was picking up on some clues and I had some hypotheses about it. And then we did work on her type, and she turned out to be an ENFJ. And much of the, uh, what I say, the, the, the conflicts that she has felt about the power of her personality, meaning that, so ENFJs are quite uh, powerful, direct communicators. They, but, and they often sound like they're being logical and, um, fear and, uh, you know, kind of business-like, but underneath it is always coming from core values and how they, uh, desire harmony in their external world. And so when I was able to articulate, we were able to articulate all that together, suddenly so many things in her life made sense. Both, both jobs that didn't work for her and that she was very unhappy in, but also jobs where she was very happy. And now what we're trying to piece together is all those places where it really did work for her, how does she string those together to now describe the environment that she really desires at this point in her career? I mean, she's in the later stages of her professional career. She's not interested in turning around anymore, and she doesn't want to, um, she doesn't want to just take another job and say continue a job. She does need to work still. So she's she's still trying to find an opportunity to gain employment and earn money, but she's not willing to just take anything because she's 
she's more clear about what works and what doesn't work for her. So should birds of a feather flock together? Should ENFJs marry ENFJs and then the world would be a happy place? Oh, that's a great question. So one of the wonderful mysteries of type is that um, love uh, it crosses all kinds of strange type barriers. So um, there's all kinds of books that, you know, people have tried to write about, you know, who's your partner and all that sort of stuff. Um, there's no, the, the wonderful thing that I like about personality types is it's not predictive. So it doesn't say that you as a particular type are going to have to behave in a particular way. It means that your tendencies, your preferences, you have likely um, uh, motivations for some of your actions, but two people of the same type might actually uh, have have different actions that be motivated similarly. And two people of different types might act the same but have different motivations. So uh, my husband and I, for example, are very different types. In fact, everything, like if you read anything about type and you know what our types are, I even had, you would think we were mortal enemies. In fact, I had a, one, a guy say after a workshop, I was, I was having dinner with him as a part of a group and I told him something about my husband and he said, he looked at me and he said, oh my gosh, you guys are like mortal enemies in the type world. And I, and I thought, well, thanks. But uh, it was actually helpful in some ways because it was difficult. And we and I happened to be in a very, very difficult time in my marriage with my husband at that particular moment when he said that. And uh, it made me really pause and think, okay, if I'm going to continue in this marriage, there's a lot more work that we need to do about coming together in finding some some reason that we're together beyond just that we you know, both we, we were both the founders of this business, um, and then we weren't in business together for quite a while, and now we back we are again. So there are all kinds of strange combinations of type, and what I've come to see over time is that if you want to look at it from like a, a you know galactic kind of big way, is that we all have some issues we're working on in this lifetime. And um, sometimes we need to work that out with a particular personality type to um, work out our, our areas that we're still still dealing with in this lifetime. And um, various people give us opportunities for that. It doesn't mean we have to take that opportunity just because someone's difficult. It doesn't mean you should marry them. But oftentimes we, we fall in love with people who, it turns out, are really very different from us. And uh, we have to uh, reconcile and uh, come to terms with uh, who we are and, and how we how we ended up choosing this person. Right, right. So one of the questions I've been grappling with um, as I've developed this podcast is how much of what we do and who we are, nature versus nurture. Um, for instance, can we train or retrain our minds to adapt to new personality traits? Or will we always end up reverting back to our dominant, you know, inherently part of our DNA traits? Uh, can an introvert become an extrovert, for instance? Okay, so the theory of personality type is that we are born with, our type is innate, it's born with us, and we remain that type our entire life. However, type is not static. As you mature, you develop your type and express it more fully over time. So in terms of extroverts becoming introverts, which is I hear from many adults who say, well, I used to be an extrovert now, but I think I'm an introvert. And many introverted adults say, oh, my gosh, I think I'm an extrovert now. And here's what really happens is 
type of uh, preferences between extroversion and introversion, for example, is based on that you have that preference and you express it 51% or more of the time. So you don't, it's not like 90%. But however, when you're, when you're a younger person, like when you're in your 20s and 30s and even younger, if you're an extrovert, you're probably doing that quite a bit of the time. You're probably, you're probably uh, interacting with your outer world and getting your energy from your outer world 60, 70, maybe even 80% of the time. So it feels like you're always an external. And then as we age, our lives get complex. We have children, we have partners, we have marriages, we have careers, we do all kinds of amazing things in our lives. And, and our time, our external time gets um, more and more demanding. So if you're an extrovert, for example, you need some inward time. It's called balance. But you never balance it by being 50-50. You just learn to develop some skills to say, I'm okay with myself. Extroverts will find that even when they're, quote, by themselves, they're often engaged with something. So they're they're physically engaged with something, they are watching something, they're playing with something, you know, they're, they're still interacting in the outer world by get to get energy with that, because that's really what extroversion is, it simply means interacting in the outer world to gain your energy. And so introverts who think that they've become extroverted, uh, what you'll find is that they have just developed really good social skills, and they've become comfortable with themselves. If you really look at the balance of their time, they're still spending 51% or more of their time quite inward and, and enjoying themselves. And introverts are really having a really lovely time inside. And many of them have great social skills. My husband's an introvert. Most people who know him professionally are shocked when I say to them that he's an introvert. Because they see him, they see him in his professional mode where he's leading uh, seminars, he, he stands in front of groups all day long and teaches. That's mostly what he does. And when he goes when he goes back to his hotel at night or when he comes home at night, he's, he's pretty dang introverted. I mean, spend, spend a week <laughs> of evenings with the man. You'll know he's introverted, you know. So, um, and even though I'm extroverted, doesn't mean I have to talk nonstop with him. You know, it, it, sometimes it means we just, are in the same company with each other. As I've grown comfortable with myself, I don't feel the need to fill the spaces all the time. And he's grown comfortable with himself. He can engage when he needs to, and he doesn't have to, and he doesn't when he doesn't want to. Huh. So that's really what that's really what we do is we immerse, we um, mature. You know that our our type doesn't change; it simply um, more fully expresses. So. Two questions that follow on from there. Well, one is more of a statement and a confirmation, actually, for me. Um, so introverts are not miserable. Yes or no? Oh, they're having a wonderful life. They have lovely, rich, incredibly rich lives internally. In fact, as much fun as extroverts think that they're having in the external world, introverts are having that much fun or more in their internal world. It's a very rich, rich tapestry internally. And then... Um, is it possible then to have multiple personalities? In other words, can you be a particular personality type at home and be a completely different personality type at work? Yeah, well, at first I thought you were asking me if we have a diagnosis of multiple personalities. <laughs> um, so, the, um, so many people have an adapted style and then they have a true style. 
So adaptive styles are things that we do because we have to, because it's really out of survival. We either we're in a role at work that requires us to be a particular way and we and we just have simply figured out a way to do that and still be sane to some degree. However, if your adapted role is so very, very different at its core than who you really are, um, that's when we see burnout happening. And, and, and many people are burned out in their careers for lots of different reasons, but um, uh, oftentimes it's because the, the tasks and responsibilities that they do all day long are a real mismatch for their core needs of their time. And so when you spend uh, 51% or more of your day, you know, in the out, in a world that's not your preferred world, whether that's your information gathering, decision making, no matter what the world is, if it's, if it's that extreme that it's out there all the time, then what happens is, is that you, you start to not be able to regenerate, you don't have enough juice to regenerate who you are, and you get burned out. And so that's often another reason why people show up on my office. They come in and they just say, I'm, I, I can't do my work and I, I can't, I can't function at work anymore. I'm so tired or I'm not sleeping at all and I can't, I can't think anymore. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I can sort of picture instances or occasions where, at least in my life, where I've been outside of that sort of comfort zone for too long, and then you end up feeling like you're just exhausted all the time, even though you haven't really done anything that's uh, particularly extraneous. It's just uh, mentally you feel drained. Yeah. But I, I, I wrote this book, that the book called Cast of Characters, and it, it was, it, I had, I'm an extrovert, so I had to go in, and I had to go pretty deeply in to write the book. It's, it was a lot of technical type stuff and theoretical and all things that I understood, but going in like that, that deeply and having to write it and really explain it so it made sense to other people, and then all the millions of charts that I had to have in the book, it was just remarkable. And, and the, the techni- technique, technical aspect of actually laying it out, because I laid the whole thing out and designed the whole thing too, it was exhausting. And I was, I had an opportunity where two years in a row I went to a uh, retreat place where I was all by myself and I could work for seven to ten days on this book, just like really bang it out. And the, of each time I came back from that, I, it took me about two weeks to recover from having, quote, been by, been resting by myself, you know, at this retreat center. And then after I finished the book, I didn't, I, I couldn't write except whatever I had to absolutely for work. You know, I couldn't, like, I couldn't do anything creative. I couldn't, I couldn't even, I really work on the, any edits of the book any further or materials that were related to the book for about a year. Wow. And finally, I finally remember kind of coming out of it because it just took so much out of me mentally and emotionally to develop that book. And I'm really glad for it, and now it's like it's ready for a revision, and I can see what I need to do with it. But it's been a few years. It's been two and a half years now since I published it. So I'm now able to like get outside of that and see what needs to be improved on it. And um, But I have another friend who wrote a book, and um, and for a year, seriously, she didn't write a thing. She just... She just I'm in a writing group, and she just came to it. She said, "I need to start writing again because I haven't written a word for a year, other than like you know emails." And she's also extroverted because it takes a it takes a lot out of um, people to 
to be out of their preferred world. So would you almost be better off to have written your book in a Starbucks coffee shop or something where there's interaction, there's people rather than going somewhere secluded? No. In fact, for this particular book, I needed to be in my isolation chamber because um, the, the the external world was um, was too distracting, and I couldn't I couldn't get the train of thought I needed to get the book written. And so while I maybe I could have done it in shorter since, like instead of seven to ten days of you know intensive, I might have done three or four and then taken a couple of days break or even a, a, a couple of months break and gone back. I just had the opportunity to do this at this retreat center, and I took it, and I just, you know, I had to do it because that was what I had for, um, I was on a deadline finally that I had to get the book done. But um, it, the kind of writing that I had to do it really required me to be completely isolated from people because it was too easy for me to um, uh, want to do nearly anything else besides write because it was, it was difficult writing. Yeah, yeah. So... Let's stick to the introvert's path for, for another minute or so, um, because this is something that's pretty close to home for me. So how does one overcome this bias that extroverted people are smart because they can think on their feet? So uh, I'll give you an example. Um, extroverted thinkers, you know, are happy to get new information in a meeting and they, you know, can quickly process it and start jabbering and giving ideas and suggestions while the introverted thinker needs time and space to process that data and come to a thoughtful conclusion. But that's usually maybe a certain number of hours later or a day later or whatever. And it actually ends up making the introvert look disengaged or lack the subject matter expertise when really it's, I think at least uh, it's, almost a function of the society that we live in where you need, we need instant gratification. We need information right at our fingertips. We need to have, you know, quick on your feet, all those things which are tailored for the extroverted type thinker. Right. So the United States culturally rewards extroversion. So as a culture, our norm is extroversion. And so we don't have a lot of patience for pauses and reflection. And some, and you said that sometimes it might be hours or days or weeks later. It actually could be just moments later, except that extroverts are so uncomfortable with silences, even moments, literally three to seven moments of silence, that they fill it so quickly that introverts often don't get an opportunity to say what their thoughts are before the topic is moved on. So one of the ways that businesses and people in general can do it is get comfortable with pauses, get comfortable with silences. And, and so one of the tricks that they, they teach you when you learn type is um, count to three in your head. So if you're an extrovert and, you're, and you think you're talking to an introvert, count to three. Not, not out loud, just count to three. Now, I would actually say it might be count to ten. Because if you have, are engaged, if you're talking to someone who's a preference with introversion and they are engaged with something else while you, like you happen to ask them a question or you interrupt them in the middle of something, it might be much longer, but it's only going to be about 10 seconds. So, you know, I, I experimented with my husband for years about this. I would figure out, like, how long did it really take him to respond? And I would be, you know, I would start to count, like, one, and I'd get to eight, nine, and then ten, and he would answer. And I knew that if he didn't answer by the count of ten, then he did not actually hear me. 
But if I started talking before the count of 10, especially if he was engaged with something, and I said to him, didn't you hear me? He would answer, yes, I heard you. And then we would get into a conversation about, well, why didn't you answer me? Right. Rather than the actual answer to the question I had. So the the thing that um, all, I would say, for all extroverts, in fact, all people in the United States, because even introverts are often um, uh, socialized, you know, that extroverts are the ones that are fast on their feet, um, is to just, just take a breath for a moment. And the other piece that I think is important is that um, extroverts, uh, even though it seems like they're always on their toes and able to respond, much of what they say is not very useful for the first, you know, seven to 25 words that get out of their mouth. And so, you know, extroverts can benefit from, from just pausing for a half a second before speaking. So it's a two, it's really both ways. And, and, and in, in meetings, you know, one of the techniques that I tell people is, um, is that you have what's called a round robin. So if you have a discussion, uh, actually go around to each person and without interrupt, with, and not allowing interruption by anybody else to say, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? And actually have each person, um, speak. One of the, uh, the challenges introverts are not, introverts never really want to repeat what's already been said. So they might say, I agree with what's being said. But if you ask them to say something, you at least know that they're on board or not on board. And if you do it without interruption, if you require it without interruption, then the extroverts have to um, listen, and they have to just sit quietly. And, you know, and extroverts can grow up a little. Like, you know, just because there's silences doesn't mean you need to fill them. You know, it's, right. it's, it's allowing yourself to, um, to not always have to fill it. And the other thing I would recommend to anybody who's dealing with this challenge is to read the book Quiet. The book Quiet is all about um, the power of introversion. And it's a very, very well done and very powerful book. Okay, good. Thank you for, for that uh, recommendation. And this is really fascinating stuff. I'm really enjoying uh, this part of the conversation and uh, wondering who makes the, the better leaders, introverts or extroverts? Uh, um, it depends on the situation. Um, you know, some people who are uh, extroverts, um, I guess it was actually depends on the situation. It depends on what's required in the, you know, what is the, what's the thing that has to be led, you know. So um, I know many people with preferences for extroversion who in the beginning of their business, for example, entrepreneurs, uh, were very powerful leaders and were able to get a lot of people on board and really get things going and bring a lot of energy in and have a lot of drive. But when the, when the business started to evolve and needed more um, reflective, revamping, visioning kinds of things, sometimes they weren't the best person to do that. And I know many introverts who have brilliant ideas, but um, don't get out and market and do the the networking or the interaction in the world to get customers. And so they sometimes either need to have some kind of referral system or they uh, need to partner with somebody who can be that kind of a person for them. So it depends a little bit on what's being led and what stage an organization is in. I think that all introverts are capable of, you know, being out there and being social and interacting with the world. All extroverts are capable of reflecting and, and thinking things through and uh, being in quiet uh, mode. But 
if we don't know that about ourselves and we don't know that there's actually value in both, we often miss the true um, power that's available in either in either mode. Um, I'm going to ask you a almost maybe in my opinion a philosophical question, but uh, give it a shot. So if our personality types tell us specific things about what we're good at and what we naturally gravitate to or you know what disciplines we should be trying to follow, why do you think that we decide to pick a paycheck over finding comfort and meaning in our lives and in our work? Well, this gets back to your nurture versus nature conversation, you know, that there are circumstances in our life. I mean, you know, when I work with people, for example, who are single parents of small children, they're going to make very different choices about how they create income than somebody who is, you know, has a, a partner or spouse, their dual income, no kid uh, household. So the sometimes our circumstances are hit us in the face with reality to say, you know, you need to make money. You need to get cash in the house so that you can pay rent and buy food. And sometimes when we're in those situations, I mean, when we've all, I, I'm assuming most people have had those kinds of times in their lives when they simply needed to have cash coming in. I, cer- I certainly did in my 20s, you know, that even when I was a reporter, I wasn't making a lot of money. So there's, there's sometimes we make choices based on our, our sort of survival in- instinct. And then uh, as we get become more comfortable or stable, we're able to uh, rise uh, above the, the morass of that and make different decisions. But, you know, also some people, that their priority is um, making money because it means something to them in a particular way. And other people want to have uh, what their priority is, is having lots of time and uh, openness in their, in their schedule. So, you know, it depends a lot on what you think is important, I guess, about those decisions. So, and oftentimes we, we got messages from our parents about what we were supposed to become or supposed to be or do in our lives. And we might have seen our, I mean, I know people who have seen that and saw their parents struggle their whole childhood and, and committed themselves to never struggling like that as adults. And they either made educational or professional choices that, that have them never be in those situations. Now they struggled in other ways, but they, you know, we are often reacting to our um, our family of origin in ways that we're either thinking that isn't me or is me, and we and we uh, don't usually have free choice about it. So, in closing, uh, this is a question I ask uh, all my guests: with all the knowledge that you've uh, accumulated over the years, if you could travel back in time and have a conversation with the younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? Don't take yourself so damn seriously. (laughs) 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 I was a very intense and serious young person. And, you know, just everything felt so serious all the time to me. And I just realized that there was a lot of anxiety in that process of, you know, it just, and it, it was mostly that it just wasn't worth it. That's great. That's great. Um, a lesson in not taking ourselves too seriously. I like that. So I must say, Marky, it's been a real pleasure and a lot of fun chatting with you. Um, I love conversations like this uh, because they really make you reflect and think beyond 
the binary and there is no single answer. And, uh, and I also feel like right now my brain hurts because, you know, you've left me with more questions than answers, uh, which I think is, is great. Uh, so thank great. you so much for, for your time and for sharing your story with us and your knowledge and your insights. And I know that I will definitely have you on my show again and we can maybe take this conversation further into some of the other areas of your business as well. I look forward to that. And thank you so much for the opportunity. It was really fun. Super. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Next time on the podcast on the shoulders of giants, Jean-Luc Duchemin joins me to talk about surviving two wars and immigrating to the United States. A lot of close friend that died in Rwanda, in the genocide that died in the Congo. A lot of them. I mean, I think with the distance, you know, you kind of learn how to forget. Uh, but at the same time, that disconnect, it, it, it's, uh, it changes you because you learn to, to shut down some part of your brain or shut down some part of your emotions so you don't miss people. You know, and it becomes difficult to operate in a world where people expect you to be normal, you know, to cry or to, to say I miss you or something. But it's really hard, you know. I mean, it's a word I use, I miss someone. But the truth is, it's like, you know, I can, get, I can move on with life without missing anyone because that's how I, I, I survive. And the guilt of, the survival guilt, and just keep thinking about why you survived and then why not someone else so many so much negativity around this but also there's the positive side of it because it has taught me to appreciate life you know like I say that the dead um, have taught me how to live uh, it's a reminder that uh, the fact that I'm alive uh, I have the responsibility to cherish the life I have and then really live it fully <laughs>